Welcome to episode 10 of Leading in a Climate Changed World from Olivia Mythodrama. In this episode, we're lucky to be speaking to Dr. Jen Bendel, Professor of Sustainability Leadership and author of Deep Adaptation. Jem starts by summarising climate science within his work in deep adaptation and corporate sustainability, in which he explains why different industries are in denial about what's going on in the world today. He introduces the four R's needed to motivate change and encourage preparation for a new way of living. Robin and Jem talk about leadership and discuss how conversations must begin around climate change, particularly if you're catapulted into a new leadership position. They discuss the importance of talking to the younger generation and getting the balance of hope and action just right. As a professor of leadership, Jem identifies where he sees direction and influence emerging and how grassroots leadership is beginning to embody the change needed to tackle the climate crisis, as well as recognising the importance of practices available to help these leaders. Please don't forget to rate our podcast and share with anyone and everyone. And in case you weren't aware, all podcasts so far are accompanied by a video hosted on the Olivier Mythodrama YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash Olivier Mythodrama. If you'd like to suggest any interviews or would like to partner up for any projects or get in touch for a bit of information, please email hello at leadinginaclimatechangeworld.com. Now over to Robin and Jem. So welcome everybody to this podcast on leading in a climate changed world. And today we are delighted to be speaking to Jem Bendel. Uh, Dr. Bendel is a professor of sustainability leadership and founder of the Institute for Leadership and Sustainability, IFLAS, at the University of Cumbria. Jem graduated from Cambridge University in 1995, beginning his career at the World Wide Fund for Nature. There, he helped to develop the Forest Stewardship Council and to create the Marine Stewardship Council. And he specialized on relationships between NGOs and business, pointing out power inequities and the way in which business agendas tend to prevail over those of the nonprofit sector. Jim has written four books on corporate sustainability and responsibility and became involved in direct action and the anti-globalization movement writing a UN report on this movement and its implications for governing capitalism, and then worked for six years in Geneva with a variety of UN agencies. In 2012, he joined Cumbria University and expanded his focus to leadership development and currency innovation. In the 2017 UK general election, he provided strategic communication advice to the Labour Party, and in July 2018, he published the paper that probably brings us to this conversation, the paper entitled Deep Adaptation, a Map for Navigating Climate Tragedy, a paper which has now been downloaded over half a million times. Deep adaptation is a concept purporting that humanity needs to prepare for fundamental disruption of its current civilization due to climate change, with a a likelihood of complete societal collapse. Unlike climate change adaptation, which aims to adapt societies gradually to the effects of climate change, deep adaptation is premised on the need to prepare for abrupt transformation. So, Jem, of course, the the opening question is really to invite you to share with us the essence of what deep adaptation is. And also, on a personal level, what drew you to this realization and to writing your paper? Sure. Thank you, Robin, and thanks for having me discuss with you today. Uh, yeah, deep adaptation is the is the term I gave to. Uh, it's really an invitation to conversation about uh, the the predicament I think we're now in. So, I felt that a lot of people in my field, so sustainability uh, research and sustainability practice particularly in corporate sustainability didn't didn't really feel they had a way of talking about what if it's too late to stop uh, uh, massive disruption to our way of life uh, and the breakdown of, of, of our societies they thought that was um, they thought that was giving up they thought that would be unhelpful uh, and they thought that would lead to despair and it was, it was extremely emotionally painful and the reaction therefore was to just push that away and I thought well looking at what's happening with the the latest uh, 
both what the latest climate science is saying, but also what the latest recordings of, of changes in our atmosphere and in our weather and the impacts on agriculture, I thought that, well, we do need to start having conversations about what if it's too late uh, to stop uh, climate change disrupting our society. And so I offered a framework, and that's what deep adaptation is. It's a, a set of four questions to help people start to lean into those very difficult issues. And so that the paper I published summarizes the climate science, then it summarizes why I think my profession have been in denial uh, about how bad things are and the impacts that are coming. Um, and then offers uh, maps out that framework. And I offer a framework where I've summarized it as four R's of uh, um, relinquishment, resilience, restoration, and reconciliation. Could you just outline the four R's in a bit more detail for us? Sure. So the first question, when you're, when you're coming to a place of uh, that OMG or holy shit moment of, the, whoa, this is, this is happening, and my old stories of uh, agency and change and positivity don't seem to be true for me anymore, the first thing that that really triggers, I think, is a question of, well, Okay, so what do I most believe in? So I frame that as um, resilience. It's basically, what do I value that I most want to keep? Um, and then you can move beyond that in terms of, well, what do we most value that we want to keep as a community or as a country or as humanity? So the first thing is simply that. that that's, that and that's my way of looking at resilience. What is it that we value that we want to keep? The second question then is the opposite of that, which is, I summarize as relinquishment, and it's what do we, what could we let go of to try not to make matters worse. So there are so many sort of ideas about progress, about status, um, that, that actually, and just norms of behavior, which could be, could be let go of. And if we try and hold on to them, then that will not help. Uh, and the third question is, um, is, uh, is another way of thinking going forward, which is, well, what, what could we bring back? What have we lost because of our hydrocarbon civilization, ways of being in community? ways of being in nature, um, ways of eating with the seasons, for example. So that I call restoration. What, what can we bring back into our way of life to help, help us going forward? And the fourth R is, is reconciliation. So um, with what and with whom could we make peace with to reduce suffering as we face this um, sense of mutual mortality? Uh, and that fourth R isn't in the paper, but it was because I realized a lot of people were reading the paper and becoming very motivated, but in a way that I think in some cases was from a place of panic. And people were talking about we must do whatever it takes. And there was that sort of defensive uh, response as well. And, and I was inviting people to think about, well, can we stay engaged, do what we can, but without being so panicked that we're attached to outcomes in a way where we might, we might make matters worse. So we need to stay active uh, and creative without having any guarantee anymore that we, we are actually going to impact positively. So that, that's, for me, that's summarized in this philosophy of reconciliation, which also has echoes of the spiritual notions of reconciliation with personal mortality, um, yeah, so it was, that's, that's, that's the fourth question. Yeah, thank you. And that, it's interesting you use the word spiritual, because as you were talking, I thought in a way it's quite a deep spiritual practice also when you talk about engaging our creativity, being active, but not being attached to the outcome. That's almost one of the definitions in a way of a spiritual path. It's to put all of your focus into doing something that you feel called to do, but not being attached to it having any impact. So that's Absolutely. also the underpinning of the work. Very, it's a big part of it because um, very much in, in our culture, but also in organizations and in leadership, there is this sense of uh, one's self-worth coming from one's potency, uh, whereby then it's, it's, it's potency in terms of not just a, a, a being a meaningful person, fully connected, engaged with life as we find it, but actually uh, having some sort of guaranteed impact in the world in a material sense. And I think we need to find a new basis for our uh, engagement with our predicament. And so engage passionately in what you believe in, but with equanimity about the outcome now. 
because one of the biggest lessons from our predicament is that we're not in control and we never were. Right. And I'm wondering how, well, I'm wondering two things. I mean, one is how has it been for you as a person to suddenly be kind of, you know, catapulted in a way into a, quite a leading position in the whole climate change conversation to have your paper downloaded half a million times is, you know, is a, is a, is a, is a step up, I imagine, in terms of your profile. I'm, I'm curious how that, how it is for you as a person. And I'm also curious how it is for the people that you're meeting how people are embracing this, this paradox in a way of do all you can and at the same time not be attached to it having an, any, any effect in a way. So, mm -hmm. how, so how are people receiving it and how has it been for you also to be a figurehead of this movement now? Yeah, I, I think it is a movement, as you say at the end there. Um, we the Facebook group I set up at the beginning of March now has about almost 6,000 people. And just in, I, I went on, on the admin panel and there's over 50,000 interactions in August alone. Uh, and we have thousands of people joining our deep adaptation forum. So dozens of volunteers around the world. So I find that people are very motivated by this topic and this framing, uh, which is about, uh, engaging with each other with open minds and open hearts about what the hell do we do now? And, and yeah, it's really, it's, there's no hiding place. You know, there's no simple, nice, neat stories of positive futures. People are showing up in their full pain, grief and love. Uh, and so, yes, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating and moving space to be in now both in person and through online connection. Um, so yes, it does feel a bit like a, a, a movement. And also it's connected to other movements. So for example, some of the key people in, in uh, Extinction Rebellion um, who've been really important in developing their, their 10 values um, have been inspired by this sense that collapse is now likely or inevitable. And we need to prefigure ways of being together in more compassionate, creative ways. Um, so seven of the 10 values in XR are all about ways of being together. In, and so that's about prefiguring ways of being no matter what may come because of climate disruption. So yes, it's a movement and it's very much um, an open-hearted one. Um, and so for me, that's been uh, <laughs> a bit of a shock. Uh, and um, there's both heaviness and joy. Uh, I have to be careful that I don't sort of end up living my old stories of responsibility and self-worth through sort of being as efficient, effective, and agentic as possible, because that would be a bit ironic, what I've just been saying. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an odd one, suddenly, um, being, a, being a spokesperson on this. My reaction when I realized in, in October, so a couple, few months after the paper came out, I realized how this was becoming a, a global phenomenon. And my inbox had gone bizarre, and I'd had over, I had over 800 emails just sitting there in my inbox randomly from people all over the world. I, I decided I wanted to connect people with each other on this um, because a lot of people were coming to me saying, Jem, can you tell me what to do, whether it's a single mother with, with a one-year-old child or whether it's someone high up in the UN or someone in a business, or someone in the Friends of the Earth, uh, from, all, from some, all walks of life getting in touch. Of course, I, what do I know about all those things? <laughs> so, um, so my reaction was to try and connect people, and that's why I launched the Deep Adaptation Forum. Um, and now we're moving to a point where I'll also hand that over to a new governance process and step back this autumn. So that's my, my own journey on this. Um, yeah, it's beautiful. And, I, and I, I, I downloaded the paper and read it, I can't remember, maybe about nine months ago, something like that. And I was very struck in particular by the writing on denial. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about the balancing of what I call kind of hope and denial. We had, we had a climate change and consciousness conference here in Finton, as you know, in, in, in April, which you were kind enough to also contribute to. 
And there were a panel of young people there. And they said, one of the things I took away from the conference was a, a strong call from the young people who were there saying, we need you as adults to embody hope for us. You can't look at us and tell us, we made a huge mistake, really sorry, hope you can deal with it. We need you to embody hope. And I'm curious how you balance that kind of a call, or what Joanna Macy calls active hope, with, you know, if we're really in a place of hope, are we in denial of the facts? So I'd, I'd like to come on to the children, the, the, the question of conversations with children in, in the second part of my answer and come back to you as well, specifically on if, if children say uh, that they would like to see adults embodying hope. But if we just, first of all, talk about this question of um, hope and uh, who needs it and what it is. Um, I've discovered that when people talk about, a lot of people, I've written a blog where it starts, uh, uh, but Jem, you need to give people hope. That's my first line. That's a quote because so many people have said that. Um, when I hear that, my, my, uh, the way the conversation now goes is I ask people to own it. So I say, so could you speak for yourself and say, if, are you saying that you feel or you think that you need hope? And let's unpack that. Let's see, well, what do you mean by hope? And because people mean so many different things, um, whether it's a, a passive wish for something better in the future for others or for themselves, or whether it's, um, whether it's a faith about meaning and purpose in life, or whether it's something more like a, a strategy uh, and a sense of agency for uh, progressing and, and, and implementing that strategy oneself, the more active hope type thing. And and people don't often say they don't think about it and they, they just use this phrase like, oh, you need hope. And that's a reflection of our death averse and pain averse culture. And I think it's also an, a, a, a reflection of our self infantilizing culture uh, where we kind of, we need happy stories and we need stories that someone somewhere will fix things materially um, because we were always going to die at some point. Um, so, so I think it's, it's, it's a reflection that we don't have a depth of conversation in, in normal life, especially not in organizations, but not even in families. Um, so that's my, that's, and then what happens when we talk to people about why they need hope, then, then often they discover they don't. They don't need hope. They find there's a deeper basis for meaning. Everyone has a deeper basis for meaning than a story of um, a materially better future. And the deeper basis for meaning is about how they are and how they wish to be in relation to others. Um, and so my hope, looking at the climate predicament we're in, is a hope that I and the people I'm with will relate in kind, curious, creative, and calm ways as much as we can, no matter what happens. Um, and so, yeah, and then my vision of, of, of society will be related to that. But also, again, the problem with vision and hope is often what you're doing is you're displacing things to some future and you're taking yourself away from how are we right now in this moment? So, you know, how am I being kind, curious, creative uh, in my everyday moment? So, um, so the, the hope conversation can be quite powerful. Um, However, if people want to talk about what well, other people need hope, I claim that society at large needs hope. Um, well, then we can have that conversation, but that's a conversation about strategic communications. <laughs> that's a conversation about social psychology. And then we can look at the data on it. We can look at all kinds of different theories on it. And also we can look at what's happened in the last year. And Extinction Rebellion is the biggest environmental phenomenon in decades. And it's explicitly about not being about hope. Um, they say, you know, one of the first banners was we're fucked over Westminster Bridge. And one of their second banners was uh, hope dies, action begins. And they're very clear that it looks like we are really in a terrible situation. But in our way of responding to that 
is to ditch acceptance or allegiance to this culture and this way of life and all the old stories we told ourselves about why we limit ourselves. Um, and we're going to live our truth to the max now. Uh, so it's, it's an interesting question around how do we talk to the publics um, if we have power to do so through the media as politicians or as activists or as uh, businesses, or how do we talk to employees? But that's a different conversation to do I need hope and what does that actually mean? So, um, so yeah, my, my, um, I, can't, I can't be truthful to say I have any hope or vision about a materially better future. Climate change, especially now we have self-reinforcing feedbacks, it means that the climate will be getting worse for human habitation for centuries, if not millennia. So, you know, we might somehow adjust to a two-degree warmed world, but it doesn't stop there. We might somehow adjust and not go extinct to a four-degree world, but it doesn't stop there. You know, so there's, <laughs> we don't know what the future is, but it's certainly not materially better. And that's a deep challenge to our whole way of experience, you know, the mainstream progressivist view of life. So um, I find that a lot of people who say, Jem, people need hope, they're actually, um, they're pain averse, as we all are. Uh, and I don't think those conversations can happen very easily in public because, because it, that, that's a very intimate, painful place to go to explore that and to let that go and find a deeper basis for meaning in one's own life. So that's that. Any thoughts on that before I talk about children, Robin? <laughs> Well, as you're talking, I've, I've got kind of Christiana Figueres interview kind of ringing in my ears, who, as you know, you know, was the executive secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, brokered what seemed to be the impossible Paris Climate Agreement, has now set up an organization called Global Optimism, speaks a lot about the need for stubborn optimism. And one phrase, I, I may be misquoting her slightly, but the essence of one phrase that she offered into this series, actually, was nobody achieved what seems to be a miracle by saying it can't be done. So she's very much on the kind of front foot. We need to be optimistic. We need to have a can do. We need to achieve uh -huh. a miracle and it's possible. So I'm just curious how your sure. take responds to that. Sure. So there's two parts to my response. I think one is that um, I am a stubborn optimist as well. I think that no matter how, what happens to the human race, uh, there will be beauty and meaning and love in it. Um, and so that's a, that's, that maybe is just a faith that there is meaning no matter what. Um, I'm also a stubborn optimist in that I don't believe we're helpless. There is agency. But the agency uh, is as much about meaning-making as uh, achieving outcomes that we can define and achieve like define now and achieve and where those outcomes are uh, reduction in carbon emissions or whatever i mean um with all the fires that are happening around the world we're going to see carbon parts per million perhaps going up even if we cut emissions um, we really may now be soon into such a desperate situation as that reaffirming that we're not in control of the situation if the problem is if, if stubborn optimism is without that process of grief and learning and letting go then it's going to look at for example this oh dear carbon emissions going up because of feedbacks from soils and forests and it will be this sort of desperate need to control which will perhaps lead to um what does that mean what does that lead to well i think it could lead to reckless behavior in terms of certain forms of geoengineering it could lead to reckless behavior in terms of um I'll save my country and my family as opposed to your country or your family. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I, that's where certain types of unreflective stubborn optimism could be dangerous. It could make matters worse. And I would, and there's another way it makes matters worse that if we do not prepare for the already underway climate impacts on our agriculture, if we do not prepare for what that will mean for food prices, for, uh, if we do not prepare for what that means for anxiety in the general public, 
you know, the study that found 86% of the British people, was it last week, the study found 86% of people are very worried about climate change and they feel anxiety over it. If we don't, if we don't just say, oh, just let's all be positive, if we don't recognize the problems that come, if we don't recognize that how the, our global financial system may panic as these impacts flow through into commodities markets and food markets and so on, um, then we don't prepare, so we don't adapt. We don't, we don't try and make our systems more resilient because somehow that wasn't being a stubborn optimist. Then we are the enemy of ongoing uh, carbon cuts and drawdown because we're making societal collapse um, and the rise of fascism more likely. So I think a, a, a bold adaptation agenda and a bold deep adaptation agenda is not against mitigation, is not against trying to reduce carbon emissions and draw down carbon. It's the necessary partner now because this is upon us. I mean, how do you tell someone in Mozambique or Guatemala to be a stubborn optimist? It's ridiculous. I mean, this is happening now. All the, the people who had to leave their farms because of what the worst drought in 800 years in Syria in the last seven years. You know, stubborn optimism, I think, is a, a global elitist. It's, a, it's, a, it's an elitist view. Um, unless it's including a stubborn optimism with that humanitarian thing. So I don't know what Christine is doing, but if it's very much also about, about working in solidarity with the people who are suffering from climate damage now, then that's, that's, that's okay. So I don't want to be too critical without realizing what, what the full, the full uh, spectrum of work that she's doing is. Yeah, thanks. And it's not so much about Christiana as, as just about the idea of optimism. Mm. I know that I know Christiana fairly well, and she's certainly a deeply compassionate human being. But it's more mm. it's more like how do we marry, as you've now spoken to, I think this question of hope, optimism, and and, and looking at the facts. And maybe that takes us on to this question about how we respond to young people. Like mm. we had this panel of people; they were sixteen to twenty-one year olds, let's say saying we need you as adults to embody hope for us. So how, how are you talking to young people who maybe carry some of the burden now? Sure. So I completely, uh, when I was a kid, I got really annoyed with any, it's typically back then and still are maybe now, but generally old men in suits uh, with top jobs at the UN or the World Bank or whatever, saying, you're the generation, you know, things are different for you, you know, you have a global mindset, you have global communications, you're well-educated, and my generation screwed it up. I heard that when I was 16. I heard that when I was 26. I heard that when I was 36. And I hear a lot of people my age saying that to young people or speaking to each other. Oh, but the young people, they're different. You know, they're not like us, they'll fix it. And uh, uh, that is a pathetic thing to say. It's, I think, completely pathetic. It's self-serving, it's cowardly. I think it's ridiculous that, 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 that children are having to do what they're doing. But also it's admirable they're doing what they're doing. So I would agree that... Uh, if I was a 16-year-old, I'd be the same as when I was 16. Don't look at us and say that we're we're gonna, you know, we're the the answer, we're the savior. We're, you know, um, it would be um, no. What are you, what are you doing about it, older generations? Um, so I'd be with them on that definitely. But at the same time, the conversations I have with young people are not on panels, so it's not about. Um, presenting a story to an audience. It's sitting in circle, looking at the latest information, because that's the compassionate way of being, because we're all gonna live through it, but they're going to um, live through this perhaps for longer. And, um, and if we have a view that the quantity of years on earth is important, then their situation is more tragic than yours or mine. 
And I don't believe that anymore. I think, a tw you know, someone living to 20 with a beautiful, woke, loving, creative life is, you know, that's more meaningful than someone living to 80 necessarily. So, it, but, but we have this attitude, we have this assumption that it's more tragic. And I totally understand that. But, but no, so this, this, I'm, I'm making a video of my conversations with children uh, and um, they want to be leveled with. They want to know, they don't want to be having to work damn hard with, STEM courses to become coders to compete with Chinese children in a global market that won't exist in a few years time. You know, we, we, our current educational system is a form of abuse, you know, testing kids in, in the way that we do. The whole notion of education needs to be challenged and transformed. So as soon as I, I heard about Greta's work in, in September last year, and I was on a, a same radio program as her, I think in end of September last year, and immediately it was like, yes, marching, great, striking, good. But, but also the best way of being in solidarity with young people is to fight back against the stupid curriculum that's being imposed and has been made worse and worse and worse over the past decades and actually help children to have time to work with them, to discover what is it they want to learn, um, to better cope with what's ahead. And that's a big challenge because a lot of the skills they need, they're not known by teachers. So we might have to bring teachers back out of retirement, the ones that used to teach woodwork and basic electric stuff and gardening and uh, cooking for lots of people. And, you know, there's all kinds of things that need to be done. So I find children, when they look at this, there's, a, there's an appetite for learning new things. You know, this, the children I've talked to are very okay with the idea, well, okay, this might be my future my future might not be having supermarkets. My future might not be having cash, uh, you know, credit cards. My future might not be having uh, internet connections like this. So in that, if that's possible, how do I prepare? And I think a lot of them are, they're a lot less invested than we are in a sense of identity and status and, and, and they don't have the same sorts of responsibilities that we tell ourselves that we have at our age. So, um, yeah. I think mm -hmm. it's, it can be quite, a, in my experience, it can be quite a creative conversation. Um, so if I was, I, I, I'm, so the children that you, at your conference who said that, so I'm with them. I'm with them in terms of don't just, don't just sort of give up and deal with your own grief and stay involved. But at the same time, um, being angry at older generations isn't going to help anybody. Um, and so we all need to learn forgiveness um, because otherwise we're not really learning much as we could do about our predicament. Um, this isn't an accident, you know. Societal collapse triggered by what we've done to the environment is not just some accident. This is how humans have been with each other in, in societies on planet Earth. This is what's happened with the way we've, way we've become. So there's a huge amount of learning that's to, to be done. And, and um, so, yeah, just trying to blame a generation or a, a class or a, a gender or an age group or, just, or, or a race or a nationality is not really deeply looking at why we got into this pickle. Right. And it's very striking to me as you talk how relational the field is that you're wanting to catalyze in a way that I, I know read some of your blogs more recently and said, you know, don't do this alone. Don't face this, this, this topic on your own. And also much of what you're talking about is sitting with people, dialoguing, in real spaces for where, where people can share kind of real heartfelt emotions and, and responses. And I want to now build a bridge of that to leadership. Mm. And I wonder where you see the kind of leadership emerging that embodies those kind of qualities. Because this is a, this is a podcast about leading in a climate change world. So whether it's grassroots, political leadership, corporate leadership, where are you seeing kind of examples of the kind of maybe relational practices or relational leadership that you feel is necessary at this time? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, I'm a professor of leadership and uh, um, my last academic paper on leadership is 
demolishing the the concept uh there's a field called critical leadership studies which basically says that that you know, leadership is just a word it doesn't exist and we just sort of lump things together that you know that we whoever's and it's typically people in org- working in organizations have decided uh, our attributes that, that you want to put under this umbrella of leadership uh, and it's really damaging as a concept because it's it it sounds like there's a special individual who should have power and should be followed. Uh, and of and critical leadership studies, uh, we challenge that and talk about leadership as, a, as, a, as an act uh, that anyone can take. And it doesn't mean that you're now a leader. Um, and that therefore, in my work as a leadership professor, I've been in, uh, trying to encourage ways of being in groups where the group is a leaderful group, where people can notice what the group might need um, in order to better achieve aims and and then it might they might step up to act in that moment and then be very ready to step back uh, and so it's very much about uh, ways of relating as you say it's 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 um, really understanding uh, uh, one's inner world uh, and being pre-forgiven in terms of, of and not worrying about this sort of social gaze about oh do, is this right or wrong you can just flow naturally into contribution and oh that didn't work step back flow again so so yes i bring all that to this uh new field of deep adaptation um this reconceived notion of leadership as collective and as episodic emergent acts in service of the whole uh and, and also this deep suspicion of anyone who starts talking about we need more leadership. And I think the problem is, is that when people in organizations or communities or countries get panicked, there's like, uh, there's the psychologists have shown this, lots of studies. We, we look to the simplest answer, which is, oh, it's the leader's fault. We need a better leader. And often people think we need a stronger leader and without, without really thinking what's all that mean. Um, so, so, yeah, I'm nervous about how people would talk about that. So qualities, yeah. Uh, um, the kind of leadership that I'm working, uh, I'm trying to support uh, I'm, and also welcoming when it appears and also to cultivate in my retreats and courses is kind of antithetical to the notions of leadership in mainstream society. It's, because it's, uh, it's kind of antithetical to patriarchy. Um, and in that, I mean, it's, I, I find that we're in this predicament because we have norms around professionalism and, and uh, what's serious and what's unserious. And we don't, we don't like uncertainty. We, we don't like, uh, we're, we're pain averse. We don't like certain emotions to be shared. We, um, and we also, we like to make sure, we like to claim potency. Um, and I'd say it's patriarchy because for men, um, we have stories around our self-worth is dependent on us being potent rather than just being loving and being enabling and responsive. Um, so there's all a lot of old baggage we've got to delve into and let go of. Uh, and that's what we do in our leadership courses. Um, you were asking me about where I've seen this leadership, yeah? Yes. Whether it's grassroots, whether it's people in circles, whether it's what and just to say, I think we would also see leadership very much the way that you do also. It's not about a position, it's more about a quality or, or an act that can arise in any person. But I'm just I'm just curious where you're witnessing it also. Yeah, so um I'll start with the you mentioned grassroots. So it's grassroots, it's it's amazing the number of volunteers who've stepped forward. Uh and work with me as moderators or as uh, uh, in the in the Facebook group, or who who are volunteers in the Deep Adaptation Forum professional interest groups, um, and someone like like uh, Jane in America. She's um, she's a full time carer now for her husband who's got dementia, and she is doing some of the best work in terms of uh, accepting applicants onto the Deep Adaptation group. Uh, and she does that without, you know, just a quiet, in-service, 
Uh, for me, that's leadership because she looked at what could she do from her position uh, to be engaged in helping people convene, uh, open up, uh, connect, and be creative about what do we do now. Um, so the, and the other moderators there on different parts of the world, David, Amy, Dan, Marietta, the, 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 you know, there's just simple behind the scenes stuff in service of um, a way of being. Um, and then there are other people, again, in, in, in the Deep Adaptation Forum. Who, uh, so for, I'll give you one example. Um, uh, Steena, Matthew and Brennan have been launched an initiative to create a database of therapeutic practices and practitioners. Uh, which is going to be free and it's going to be for people who want to uh, be professionally involved in deep adaptation work to find that support, that nourishment, because it's a tough situation to be in. So again, it's, I suppose I'm getting at also this systems consciousness, this in-service of systems to create. It's, it's not about them. It's about how can they help many, many, many more people relate in positive ways given our predicament. Um, and, and of course, this isn't new. I mean, you, you mentioned that you've had Joanna Macy on your, on your, on your uh, podcast. And so prior to Deep Adaptation, obviously Joanna's work with the work that reconnects is very much in that mold. It's, it's modalities for people to come together, to express their grief and to find a new basis for compassionate engagement in, in our situation in life. Um, so... So she's absolutely, in that sense, a deep adaptation uh, leader. Um, but that doesn't mean everyone has to be like that. There's all kinds of ways of contributing. Uh, I, I have difficulty finding anyone in mm, sort of like big organizations that I would say is known to me as leading on this. Because it's, it's new, this idea that like talking talking publicly that you think that societal collapse is either likely inevitable or already unfolding that that's yeah that's new and talking professionally about that is extremely new um i think john doyle in the eu is probably the person most senior in an establishment you know senior role in an established organization the european commission who is who who is leading on this and for him it it's this um uh, the key is the the courage that comes from acceptance that everything must change now so he's taking risks he's so open in the conference i went to in brussels uh, he's doing stuff which isn't his job because he just wants to shake up the european commission and plant this seed across the commission that we need to now prepare for massive disruption to, to the European economy and society in the near term. And that simple truth telling, and, and that requires some courage because you're in a system where you, you know how people in your, will look at you. Um, um, and so many people, I mean, I used to work at the UN, so many people in esteemed institutions um, they feel buttressed as in their identity, in their sense of who they are from having those jobs. Um, it's like reassurance that, oh, you, you did good. You know, your parents can be proud of you. <laughs> um, and there's a little bit of fuck you to all of that if you're going to start suddenly saying everything we're doing here is now redundant <laughs> but that, that's 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 like you're giving the finger to to everything um so there's a deep courage for that so that's in and i think that's also why we're not seeing such um leadership from people on this in in big organizations yet uh because it's bewildering to know what to do other than maybe do what john Doyle's doing which is saying we have to do something completely different now and i guess the same is true politically I don't know if you can think of any of the kind of more overt political leaders who are embodying anything approaching what you're talking about, because it's very hard for people to feel they're going to get elected by saying, we need to prepare for massive disruption. <clears throat> people are more likely to vote for people who say, yes, we can make it, or actually there isn't really an issue to address in the first place. Um, 
Yeah, it is very difficult, as you say, for a politician seeking election to talk about such a bleak future. Um, but they can talk about things that matter to them that always have mattered. Truth, love, solidarity, um, ingenuity. Um, they can talk about the importance of, of um, people working together in, in uh, mutual self-interest. Uh, they can talk about fairness and equity. Um, yeah, all kinds of, all, yeah, there's, there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, I've done some work with the Labour Party in the past, and one reason why I reached out to the leadership office uh, towards the end of 2016 in the UK, um, the Labour Party leadership office, was because Jeremy Corbyn was bringing to public discourse, um, talking about being proud that we're compassionate, being proud that we believe in uh, looking out for each other. Um, yeah, and that had sort of, that had been lost in political discourse with this sort of managerialist uh, narrative um, since the 90s. So that's important. And they've come quite a long way in some of their thinking. They do, to, the, the Labour Party in the UK do talk about the need now to fundamentally transform the whole of the British economy uh, to decarbonize. Um, and uh, adaptation is not yet a big part of their policy suite, but we'll see. Yeah, thank you. And I think as we come towards the end of our, of our podcast, I want to invite you just to share with us where you are with developing practices that would support us at this time. You know, you talked about sitting in circle, grief work, facing uh, feelings fully. And my understanding is that through the Deep Adaptation Forum and maybe some other places also, you're also elaborating practices that can be supported. Maybe you could just say a word or two about that. Yeah, so we, the people I work with, we have a small team of, of five of us, uh, part-time, and as a forum, we are very focused on how we show up together in, in meetings, because it's, it's, not, it's not an agenda where there's simple answers. Uh, so it's about how we act with each other and how we enable each other to really explore topics um, with open minds and hearts. Uh, and the, the, the impediments to that will be old stories of what's acceptable or not acceptable and um, habits of self-regulation um, and habits of communication which sort of avoid that internal pain. Like what I was saying, if people say in a group, well, people need hope, or I think it's, it's a, when we're in circle, um, if that comes up, for example, uh, a facilitator like myself or someone I work with would actually help people own it and explore in what, what's really happening for them. Um, so we do something which we call conscious relating. Some people call it authentic relating. Some people call it circling. And I do that in my courses and in retreats, but also we now do it online in our online meetings, which is about um, uh, 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 valuing your own experience, your own inner world, including what, what, what's happening in your body with an emotion. And, uh, and expressing it, but expressing it where it's, there's an agreement, this won't be understood as a criticism of the group or of an individual in the group. So, you know, hearing you say that in me, I noticed X, I, I had anger and I had a tightening in my throat, for example. So, but that's just my world. That's just what's happening in me. And that's telling me something about me. And then you're all witnessing that and maybe beginning to learn something about me, but maybe just your reactions to what I've just said is helping you learn about yourself. So this is a modality to shift us into a, in a much, uh, I find, much more powerful way of then being in conversation about this problem, this predicament. So yeah, conscious relating is quite important to us uh, as a, sort of the glue or the foundation for then what we do next. Um, we also, we're funding deep adaptation dialogues in communities 
around the world and we require an open space technology facilitator, someone who's been trained and experienced in the method to run those. And we also recommend, because we found it works, which is that you divide that up into two different open space processes. Um, so open space, as you know, Robin, because you've done it for a, <laughs> a long time, I'm sure. Um, the people who join the meeting come with their own issue that they want to talk about. Uh, and they offer that to the group and then we find out what people do want to talk about. So it's an emergent agenda. Uh, and there are other really helpful principles around emergence and flow. Um, but we suggest that the first session uh, is about being with this rather than doing anything about it. Uh, because we have habits in our culture and in our organizational lives of uh, going immediately into fix-it mentality, uh, and therefore we don't sit with the pain and the difficulties and the complexity. And so we encourage people to propose conversations related to how we are being with this predicament now. And then the second round is... Uh, what do we want to do about it type questions. And uh, yeah, we're learning a lot from all this and we've developed some principles around deep adaptation gatherings uh, and uh, guidelines because there are dozens of groups being created in towns around the world and different language groups on deep adaptation. So we've created an affiliated groups network and we've got some guidelines, principles for how to uh, manage those online spaces and how to host in-person and online conversations. Uh, and we're going to be publishing some of that stuff as well in the next month or two. Yeah, it's great. Thank you so much. I think we need to draw our conversation to a close, but I really have appreciated it. And I, I'm very touched by, by your sincerity, but also by, by your humanity. It's, it's, it's the bridging of, of the, the human nature of embracing what we need to embrace right now. And also what to me feels like a profound kind of psychological, emotional, spiritual orientation around, around hosting. <clears throat> what Thomas Hubel, one of the other people in our, in our podcast oh. series, would call it like hosting and global social witnessing, like hosting what, what we encounter at the moment. So it's been very, um, yeah, very beautiful to, to have this time with you. And I just want to wish you well <clears throat> with the future for you personally and whatever roles you elaborate and evolve for yourself around deep adaptation work and this in your life in, in general and also that your work may go from strength to strength it feels like it's definitely needed at this time the fact it's been downloaded so often is a is testimony to that it, it's it's calling to people in a in a deep and profound way so thank you for articulating that a while ago thank you for your consistency in in staying with the process and for all that it is bringing us and thank you for your time today also well, thank you, Robin. And uh, yeah, I'm going to, I'll tune in, watch some of the other ones too. Thanks. Mm -hmm.